Thank you, brother. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We turn here once again. Omitted to mention this morning that John Juckstock has been moved, relocated to uh, rehabilitation. I haven't heard any update. Some of you received that information. I haven't heard any more. Um, there was plans for it to be that rehabilitation area that's near Greer Memorial. I'm not sure if that transpired as was intended. I trust it has, but we're thankful for Little indications of progress for our brother, but he continues to need our prayers. I want to be praying very sincerely for him and for Judy and God's sustaining grace on them at this time and rapid recovery for our dear brother as well. We're in First Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 1 again. And as we read over it, each Lord's Day you'll become more and more familiar with the passage and I trust that will be the case. We'll take time again to read the opening ten verses that the Word of God will have preeminence in our hearing today and that we will get familiar with this portion of the Word. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and of much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. But they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. This is the Word of God. We trust that the Spirit will apply it to every heart here today. Let's momentarily pray again, beloved. Let's seek the Lord. Father, we come to Thee with the Word of God open. What a blessing that is. We pray that it will not be some mere vain exercise. This Word that has transcended all the changes of society and all the movements politically over the ages, that it will come alive to us here today. We pray for the ministry of the Spirit of God. We, we are so dependent on Him. Only He is able to open hearts. Only He is able to give understanding of the Scriptures. 
We know that people can read it and perhaps, perhaps to some degree they can grasp what's being said, but we don't want that kind of surface understanding. We want a saving understanding. We want an understanding that leads us to Christ and leads us into more conformity to His image. So Lord, today, as a preacher, I cast myself upon Thee and Thy grace. Fill me with the Holy Ghost. Give great help today and save, restore, and build up Thy church today. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the ways we show our love and concern to someone that's at a distance from us is by communicating with them. Nowadays, of course, we have many ways of doing that, whether it be by letter, the old-fashioned snail mail, or email, or texting in all its various forms, whether it be iMessage, SMS, WhatsApp, and what have you, all these different ways that we communicate with one another, and we, we endeavor to stay in touch with those that we care about, those that we, we love. We appreciate even the greater advances of technology that allow us now to actually see those in real time that are thousands of miles away. And certainly our family appreciate that when we have access to things like FaceTime or Skype or whatever the case might be. It even helps in terms of God's work when you're in a country that's so vast and you're a relatively small church or a body of churches that you're able to use Skype to, to have meetings and discussions about matters of church affairs. We've, we very much appreciate we don't have to take a flight every time we have to discuss matters concerning the Lord's work. Our love is expressed in communication through activity that shows our concern for those that we love. And Paul, while he did not have access to all the methods of communication that we have today, yet he takes time to get in touch with this congregation in Thessalonica. His heart goes out to them. His love is clear uh, toward them. He, he is, is full of joy in every remembrance of them. And he takes the time out of his intensely busy schedule to write to them. And of course, it was a very taxing thing in those days, a very expensive thing. Even the materials that there would be required to write a letter like this and then to have it communicated across the many, many miles to get it over there would have been a taxing thing indeed. And I think sometimes we forget that when we just quickly type up an email and hit send that we don't, we don't live back in the days where it was much more difficult to send information across miles. But he had a love for them that was willing to sacrifice time and give effort to show how he could help them as they continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And we saw last week from the very first verse that he begins with a greeting. But it's not just a greeting. It's more than that. It's, it's packed with theological implications, with truths. It shows that those to whom he is writing are now the church. They are the called out ones. They have been delivered out of the world. We consider the fact that they're still living in the same communities. They still probably have the same neighbors. But now they have been removed from the, the world in which they live in a, in a certain sense. Things are not the same as they once were. They are now the called out ones, the ecclesia, those that have been delivered from the world and its sin and its ways and now have new hearts and new lives. But it's more than just being removed from something. It's removed into something or more accurately someone. 
And they're now in union with the triune God. They are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has come about by the ministry of the Spirit of God as we looked at verse 5 just to see that it wasn't just the gospel being communicated in word, but the Spirit of God was taking that word and applying it effectually to the heart so that they were transformed in the receiving of that truth. As we move on, we come to verse 2, and we're going to seek by the help of the Lord to look at verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. And it's one sentence, it's all one. You can see as he begins there, we give thanks to God, and it ends at the end of verse 4. And we're going to try and, and bring about the sense of these verses to you, and I trust the Lord will, will bless them. There's, you can see it kind of divide up naturally in some way, because in verse 2 he talks about making mention of you. There's something that Paul's doing in verse 2. He's making mention of them in his prayers. Verse 3, he is remembering them. And then in verse 4, he is knowing something. And you can kind of see a division there that naturally breaks up the text. And, and this morning, we have, we have entitled this message very simply, Evidence of Election. Evidence of Election. And of course, it's hinging very much on verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And there's much truth for us to consider. I trust that God will make it a means of encouragement to us as well as challenge. So, I want us to see, first of all, that this evidence of election encourages prayer. It encourages prayer. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. What a thing it would have been to be prayed for by the Apostle Paul. I'm sure you've been encouraged when you hear that certain individuals pray for you. When they tell you, I'm praying for you, and you get a sense that they actually mean it. I think sometimes those words can be said, and we, we, we wonder whether or not we really are being remembered. And I think we wonder that because we know our own hearts. And the times we've said we'd pray for someone, and we have failed to do so in the diligent fashion that we intended. But Paul was not that kind of person. He was not negligent. And to have him pray for you was, was, must have been a, a huge encouragement to hear that the apostle himself, with all the cares of the churches that weighed upon his heart, that he is actually praying for your little flock and for your needs as they are, uh, as you seek to labor for the Lord. But why does he thank God? Why does he begin this way? We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Why is he thanking God? Why not thank them? Why not show appreciation directly to them? Well, it's very simple, and I'm sure many of you know. God is the originator of all that has been accomplished in the city for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without God, none of this takes place. Without God, there is no church. Without God, there's no gospel to preach in this city. Without God, there's nothing. And of course, without God sending a spirit, taking the word preached by the apostle and by Silas and Timothy and the others, without taking that and applying it powerfully to hearts, nothing happens. And so Paul is not unmindful to see the source of all blessing and to, to go first to God. To go first to God, we give thanks to God always for you all. Let there never be a charge that can be made against us, either individually or collectively, that we ascribe glory to something or someone other than God. You think of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. It's not to us. 
We go to God, we give glory to Him, and this is, this is a natural expression of thanks that comes from the Apostle Paul. We give thanks to God. Now, I trust that is the way we are. And I hope that you're not being indoctrinated and your hearts are not being misguided by the philosophies of our day. It's amazing to me, and I was thinking about this this morning as I was getting ready, and I was thinking about our Sunday school, the adult Sunday school, and our brother, Mr. Farr, dealing with the ninth chapter of the Westminster Confession. If you could come and you're not there, you're, you're missing out. I just, just pitched that in there. Um, it's good. It's getting the old cogs turning for many people, and it's helpful. But I was thinking about it this morning. I was thinking about the way we are living in a day, and I'm sure it's not new to our generation. Clearly it's not, but it's just so manifest today, and I I can speak more intelligently about my generation than I can about other generations, but how how we try to tenet divide things so that everything good we do, all our successes should be ascribed to ourselves, that I accomplished this, and I did that, and I did the other, And, and we see the kind of independence of our wills as keeping in in kind of in line with what our brother was dealing with, that, that we have this independence of our wills that we apply and we exercise, and when it leads to our perceived success, then we want the glory for it. But when it comes to the things that are not good, when the things are, they don't fall out according to plan or, or certain things transpire in our lives, all of a sudden we, we detach ourselves from the blame. It's not us. As you, you read the, 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 some of the philosophers of our day and our generation, it's your DNA, it's your makeup. And that's set, and you are, and you become what you are because of your genetic makeup, and that's it. Some will also allow a little bit of give in regards to environmental aspects as well. It's the environment in which you were brought up, the, the world in which you, you grew up, whatever, all of that. And, and that's why you, you made that poor decision. Or you failed in that aspect. Or that relationship didn't work. It's, it's not really your fault. It's not really you. It's something you're subject to. And this is, this is, this is the way the world is today. It, it's like this. It's, if it's good, I want the glory. If it's bad, it's not me. It was the way my parents raised me. It's the world in which I grew up. It's the environment in which I live. It's all of that. That's the way we are today. A very clear distinction. I want all the glory for the good and someone else can take the blame for the bad. I trust as God's people we are not like that. And it would be very helpful if you were being reminded of the truths in the ninth chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith because what it puts upon us is an understanding of responsibility. That we are responsible. I am not. I am not. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that genetics and... And our environment don't play a part in certain things, but we cannot just cast off and say it's because of that. It's not me. That's being irresponsible. And of course, <laughs> if you were passing exams, you wouldn't say, oh, it's just my genetic makeup. You said, no, I, I worked hard and I did that. Something else that was successful, you want to gain the glory. As God's people, let us not fall into those, these philosophical errors of our day. Let us be a people that ascribe glory to God. We give thanks to God always for you all. And of course, Paul is doing this all the time. That does not mean that it's every moment of every day, but it means that there's a, there's a repetition in his giving thanks. Daily, no doubt. He is mentioning them. He is 
bringing them before the Lord. And it's not just for his favorite individuals in that church. No doubt he had them, those that he really connected with, as it were. But it's for you all. It's for you all. He's giving thanks for them all. There are are lessons and application here, beloved. And that is that we should have a love and appreciation for all of God's people. Paul's not being selective here. He's not saying, I'm praying for this person and that person and those individuals. I am praying and giving thanks to God for you all. You're all the Lord's people. And I'm thankful for every last one of you. Though you're different members within the body and your activity in the ministry is different and what you can do and what you're enabled to do is different. But I'm not kind of putting on a pedestal those that are the preachers there and forgetting those that are unable to do that kind of activity or helpful ministry. We are all, you, you all have a part in this. You're all important. You matter to God, and so I give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. I trust that's the way we pray. I, I'm sure there are those that Paul would have prayed for a little more. I imagine he prayed very fervently for Timothy. I would imagine all the time he was praying for Timothy. Lord, help Timothy. Strengthen Timothy. Imagine the same was true for Silas or Silvanus as he's named here. I'm sure he, was, he, was, he maybe focused more prayers there. But that didn't make him negligent of all of God's people. Now, if, <laughs> if we have a problem with a brother or a sister so that we can't pray for their good and give glory to God for what they are in grace, is there not a problem that needs to be resolved? I know, I know that there's sometimes a conflict of personality and differences of opinion and there can be a striving that can be experienced. Paul himself knew what that was like. But he gave thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. If there's, a treme- if there's a real problem in mentioning a brother or sister in prayer and thanking God for them, then there is a real problem. Paul does not have favorites in the sense that he kind of relegates some to a place where I don't care about you. These people are blood-bought. These people have been transformed. These people have been brought in by Christ. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And because that's true, and we'll see that when we get near the end, we'll see because that is true, that, that puts an obligation on Paul and upon us all to pray for all of God's people. I trust you pray for the Lord's people. You pray for the church and, 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 you, and you pray for God's people. Maybe sometimes it's, it's, it's merely collectively and that's okay. But you pray positively. like you, you think of them and you want the Lord's blessing upon them. We have to have this heart. For it is the heart of our Lord Himself. So we've seen that this evidence of election encourages prayer. But it is also demonstrated by practice. This evidence of election is demonstrated by practice. We come to verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. It begins remembering. Remembering. And it's not just in terms of memory. 
No doubt memory plays a part. But all that he knew about them was leading him to pray for them and remember them in a very specific fashion so that when you come to the end of the verse, the grammar there where it says patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, it's not talking about them doing this in the sight of God and our Father. It's talking about Paul doing this in the sight of God and our Father. Paul is remembering them before God. That's what he's saying. He is bearing them up before God. He is remembering them in that sense, not just in what he knew about them, that's true, but also in the sense that the prayers that are being offered up, this is how he remembers them. Now, he mentions three graces, chief graces you have there. Your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Faith, love, and hope. These are the same graces that he mentions. If you flip over just very quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the end of that well-known chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, the end of the chapter, Now abideth faith, hope, charity, or love. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. So Paul has mentioned them here, these chief graces, faith, hope, and charity, and now he's mentioning them here as well. In fact, he also mentions them in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, where again, where he's writing to them, and he talks about, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love which ye have to all the saints, and the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So again, he's mentioned faith, love, and hope. And this text is actually helpful for us in understanding exactly what he's dealing with here in First Th- Thessalonians chapter 1. These graces have meaning. They have importance. And they're not just abstract concepts. You're not just talking about faith and love and hope in some abstract fashion. These are real, concrete things. They're not theoretical. They're not conceptual. They operate in the life of God's people. They can be seen. They can be witnessed. They can be known. And Paul makes mention of them, not for the sake of flattery, saying, well, I remember your faith, your love, your hope, in the various ways he expresses it here, but he is, he, is, he, is, he is honing in on something that was true of them, and he is seeking to stimulate and deepen that work that was already going on in their lives. Now, before we say anything more and begin to look at these individually, are these things working in your life? Is there faith? Is there love? Is there hope? Are they in your life? Faith, love, hope. They need to be because these are the, the evidences. These, this, is, this is Paul knowing their election by this. I know, brethren, beloved, your election of God because these things are clearly manifest in your life. Your faith, your love, your hope. In other words, if you look at someone and you can't detect this, you can't discern this, there's probably... <laughs> There's probably no life there. There's no spiritual life there. There's no genuine knowledge of God. So, before we go any further, we want to be answering that question in our hearts. Do I have this? Do I live my life in faith? That there's an active faith in my life. I'm looking, and we'll think about it a little more in just a moment, but there's a real faith that you're there's a difference in your life from what it once was, that you you live in faith, leaning on Christ, resting on His Word, 
walking in obedience to all that He has said. Faith. There's love as well. And we'll see what this means more fully. And then hope, where your, your heart is encouraged by what is laid up for you. Well, let's, let's look at these then before we go any further. Faith. Your work of faith. He has a modifier here to elaborate on it. Your work of faith. What does he mean by using this word work? Your work of faith. In other words, he's talking about work that is produced from your faith. This, your faith produces work. Now, how does he see that? I mean, faith in, in some way is something that can't be perceived. Isn't that right? I mean, I, I can't see how much faith you have. It's not like I, I look at your face and there's a little kind of level on your forehead that says, you know, well, it's full of faith or he is empty of faith. I can't see that. You can't see that in me. But he sees faith in them. And so therefore, we understand faith is something that can be perceived. It's, it's, it's evident as you watch on. And he talks about your work of faith. In other words, your faith works. It produces work. Now, we know that faith is the gift of God. God grants faith, enables us to rest in Him by the regenerating power of a spirit. We lean on the gospel. We come to rest in the truth. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, very helpful text, he says, For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now, his intention for us is to look at the fact that it has been given for us to suffer. But in the midst of that text, there's a helpful understanding that, it, that what also was given was to believe on Him. And so when I, when I look back and wonder, why am I a Christian? Why am I living the Christian life? Why do I have a love for the Lord? It was given. It was given to believe on Him as well as to suffer for His sake. And I'm thankful for that. This, this faith which is the gift of God. But what is the work of faith? Well, I want to look at it in three ways with you very quickly. When we think of faith, the work of faith, we can't skip over that it is first and foremost a resting on Christ. The work of faith is a resting on Christ. I have to begin there. It's not maybe, maybe the main kind of focus of the Apostle Paul, but I want us to consider it just for a moment, that there, there's a resting on Christ. There is no faith, real faith, meaningful faith, if there is not first a resting on Christ. You say, I believe in God. Very good. Millions believe in God, some form of deity. But to have a real faith, the faith that Paul is referring to, the faith that worked here in the lives of the Thessalonians, it rests in Christ. Now as you think and ask yourself the question, do I have faith? I want you to consider whether or not you're resting in Christ. That faith is expressed fundamentally by resting in Christ. That that's the first work, as it were. I am resting. Now, again, resting conflicts with the idea of work. But you understand what I'm saying. That as faith is expressed, it is expressed first in resting. And so, what happened to these Thessalonians... You can see from verse 9 that they turned to God from idols. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, at one point they had faith in whatever they were doing with these idols. 
They believed that these idols would provide for them, help them in their industry, help them when it came to time of harvest or whatever else, fertility, whatever. They, they would have faith in that and they would exercise it. So it's not that kind of faith that they now have. It's a faith that turns to the living and true God. Now that living and true God cannot be divorced from the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. You need to rest in Christ. How do we know one is a Christian? How do we identify the distinction between faith generally and saving faith? Faith that makes one a Christian. Faith that guarantees one is going to heaven. It is by this. One believes something, whatever it might be. The other, however, is resting entirely on Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into this world on behalf of sinners. And He came into this world to do what we could not do. He lived perfectly for us. And He died on the cross to suffer on our behalf. What we are called upon by God to do, what Paul went in to this city and preached, was that sinners, those that were before Him, those that were without the true God, simply need to rest in the finished work of God's dear Son. If you want to be saved, if you want to know you're going to heaven, it's not complex. It's very simple. It begins by this kind of faith that rests on Christ, that leans on Him. It is not. And this is a distinction. You don't really have to know all the errors of every cult and every false religion in the world. One of the quickest ways to really get down to the nitty-gritty is simply ask someone, whether it be Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, or whoever it might be, you ask them, I have five minutes to live. What do you tell me? What must I do to know that it is well with my soul? I have five minutes. You have five minutes. Help me to know God. And then see them stumble because they have this whole process. And you have to begin to do this and change that and do the other. And it can't be done in five minutes. Because it's depending on your work and that takes time. But God sent His Son not for us to spend time working out our salvation in the sense of trying to achieve it before God. He came so that Jesus Christ could hang on the cross and say to the malefactor, the sinner, the criminal on the other cross, say, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today, there you're hanging on the cross. You can't right your wrongs. You can't go and ask forgiveness to those that you have wronged through your life. You can't do that. You can't reconcile or make reparation. You can't do that. You're about to die, but you just rest. You rest. Remember me. That's all he said. Remember me. Remember me. He's just leaning on Christ. He's just throwing his soul upon the Son of God. Remember me. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Are you resting on Christ? Are you? But it's not only resting on Christ, there's repentance from sin. Faith, the work of faith, will express repentance from sin. It is absolutely impossible for someone to truly rest in Christ without then beginning to hate the sins that caused Christ the suffering. It is impossible. And I know that it's manifest in varying degrees and there's a process of growing in our understanding of our sin. 
And that's what makes repentance a lifelong experience. We are always repenting. Always repenting. If I am growing in grace, I am growing in my understanding of the ways in which I have, I am guilty of very sins that Christ had to die for. And so as I come to a greater knowledge of that, at first I may know, well, I have told many lies. I know myself to be a liar. And I confess that very freely from the beginning. Lord, I have a lying tongue. Forgive me for my lies. And then you begin to realize, well, adultery and fornication also is wrong. And you forgive me for this sin. But as you grow, as you advance, you begin to realize that this deepens and your understanding of sin it broadens and increases and you begin to ask God for forgiveness for things that before you didn't even realize were wrong. This is growing. This is faith growing and it's expressed not only in resting on Christ but in repentance from sin. Thomas Chalmers, great Scottish preacher of the 19th century, he said this, and I find this very encouraging and I think there's tremendous truth in what he says. He said, True holiness in this life is but quick repenting. True holiness in this life is but quick repenting. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to eradicate all sin. That is for another day when it's absent from this body. But, but, as you grow, as you advance as a Christian, what you begin to do is to repent faster. Repent more frequently. Begin to see more sins in your life and turn them over to the Lord and put them under the blood. Holiness, as he said, is in this life but quick repenting. Turning quickly onto God to ask forgiveness. Thirdly, it's also rich in good works. And this is really the heart of what Paul is talking about. Your work of faith. That is faith. This work that is produced by their faith. They're rich in good works. He remembers without ceasing your work of faith. Your work of faith. I saw your faith work. I remember it. I have heard about it from Timothy and his report to me. I've heard about this. Remember what James said? James 2 verse 17, he said, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead. If you say, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't produce work, There's something deficient in the faith. There's a shortcoming. You'll see also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, over in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, again, ask the question, how did Timothy see their faith? How did he see it? He saw it in how they lived. He saw it in what was going on. He goes into the city, and as they're living their lives, he sees their faith. Again, it's not some kind of little meter that's on our foreheads. You can see, look, there's a lot of faith there. It's seen by what we do. And Timothy could see it. Matthew Henry, great commentator of the Scriptures, he says, wherever there is a true faith, it will work. It will have an influence upon heart, and life. It will put us upon working for God and for our own salvation. Now, don't misunderstand him. It's not, he's not saying that you're, you, you earn your salvation, but it puts you on a path of working. In other words, deepening the graces. We have comfort in our own faith and the faith of others when we perceive the work of faith. 
this is really, and I can't take time to turn to it because I'll never get finished if I do, at least not in the time you would want me to. In 1 John, and you go to 1 John, you see there's tests that John puts out. And you go through the tests. You ask yourself, the question, do, do, I, do I pass these tests? That the, the faith should look like something. It should manifest in a certain way. Well, it did there. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. If you went into that city and you went into that church, you would see a changed people. Their lives would be transformed. They would not look like what they once did when they were giving themselves to false idols and so on. Their lives were transformed for the good, for the better. Their faith would work. Then he talks also about love. And labor of love. That's how he modifies it. Your labor of love. The word work that he used in regard to faith is just a very familiar word for work, ergon. But when he uses the word labor of love, it has a sense of intensity, of toil. It's much more, uh, as I say, the word intense, I think, is a helpful word. There's an intensity in the term here. There's as a toiling in their love. Now, the question we ask then is, well, well, how is this expressed? And there's been different ideas. I mean, some have really, in, in some ways, amalgamated the work of faith and labor of love, almost as if they're basically the same thing. I think they're making an error there. I think there's, there's a general sense in which their faith works out in every possible way. But their labor of love is in a specific way. And that's where I think Colossians chapter 1 is helpful. Because I think when Paul writes it there, he has the same thing in mind when he writes, when he, when he wrote First Thessalonians. So he says there about the love which you have to all the saints. There's a faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. And then he mentions hope as well. So he's dealing with the same graces. But here he talks about love which you have to all the saints. And I think that the labor of love, the toiling of their love, is expressed predominantly in how they dealt with other believers. This is what distinguished them. That they would go to the excess toward the brethren. I think this is why Paul is so happy about what's going on there. I think it's why he's rejoicing. If you think, for example, what the Lord Jesus taught in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. What's the Lord saying there? Well, a number of things. But one of the things he's saying for our purposes is that the visible relationship between believers, the visible relationship between believers will be an evidence of salvation. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. All men, not just outside in the world. All men will know that you're my disciples. This applies to the body of Christ as well. I know often we apply it outside in the world and it has application. That the world looking on, seeing the love that there is between believers, will see, 
Behold how they love one another. And it's a testimony to them. But it's also within, it's also internally, that the love we have for the brethren helps us to know that we are true disciples of Christ. If you live in such a way where, where there's such abounding love in your heart toward me, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and your heart's overflowing in love, in service, you toil to help and encourage and be a blessing to me, am I going to be in any doubt whatsoever that you're the Lord's? No. <laughs> I'll be absolutely convinced that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. I will know it by your love toward me. And every child of God is the same. When you abound, when you toil in love directly toward God's people, when you labor, when your love produces a labor toward the saints, then all the saints know that you're on the same page, that you love the same Savior. You serve the same God. And again, this, this cannot be understated. The Lord, the Lord could see this, Paul could observe this in this little church that had very little grounding from the Apostle Paul, when you think of the fact that he spent three years in Ephesus, 18 months in Corinth, he spends just a few weeks here before he had to move away. When you think of that, and they had already got this. They had got this. And when Timothy goes back, it's absolutely evident that these people love each other. They are overflowing in love toward another. So we are to toil in our love. Now, what does that look like? Well, it may be practical sometimes. I see a Christian who needs my help. I toil in love to help them. You see a brother that has need and you look the other way, there's something wrong. Very, very wrong. But it's not just in the practical. I, I don't want, I think that, I think we know that. I think we know that. Our application of toiling and love toward the brethren, we can leave it in terms of the practical outworking of helping, shouldering, encouraging in a very visible way. And certainly that's included. But I think there's more. What came to mind is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Peter says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Okay, so he's, he's driving home the same point. Love, not just love among yourselves, fervent love, energetic love, toiling love, passionate love between the saints. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. What's the labor Peter is looking for? He's looking for the kind of Christian labor that causes me to so love my brother, my sister in the Lord, I labor to hide, to hide their sin rather than expose it. Oh, <laughs> if only there was more of that. Laboring to hide and cover each other's sins. That's labor. That is toiling. That takes work. I can quickly see a need there and reach out a hand to help, throw in a few dollars if someone has. That, that, that almost, you can, you can do that very quickly. But when you're in a particular scenario where you see a brother at fault, you will know it takes tremendous strength of will and the help of the grace of God to toil in covering their sin rather than broadcasting it. 
takes far more labor. This is where many of us fall short, I fear. But we should not. We should not make allowances for it. Fervent charity among yourselves, Peter's looking for. Fervent charity. Those at Thessalonica were were expressing that. They were toiling in love. And as I say, I think the main focus of that was toward one another. They had such a love for the rest of God's people. And of course, persecution was helping, no doubt. No doubt persecution helped. Their backs were against the wall. They were outnumbered. They were overpowered. They hadn't any help. And they're huddling together and they're supporting one another, of course. And we live in the midst of our freedoms today. And we can, we can enjoy, and I, I use this not meaning it in any real sense, but the church can enjoy the luxury of being critical of God's people. Enjoy that luxury. Well, that's not always the case. And when tremendous persecution comes and your back is against the wall and you're sharing prison cells with other believers that you may not see eye to eye to in every jot and tittle, all of a sudden those things don't matter because it's you against them. It is a real sense of being called out of the world into Christ, knowing that your love for Christ makes you different from the world and the world know it and they oppose you and because of your mutual love for Christ, it draws you together. And such love to cover our sins. Oh, beloved, be in the business of covering sin. Be in that kind of toil of love for the brethren. The labor of love. The labor of love, the fervent charity. Laboring to cover a multitude of sins. Laboring to help Christians. In every way. But of course, it's not just other Christians. I'll just mention this very quickly. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. You can see the Thessalonians were not exclusively helping one another. Chapter 3, verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. Paul, Paul, see, the preacher, the good preacher is always looking more <laughs> of a good thing. More of a good thing. Abounding. It's already there. Increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So he's pushing more for more love toward one another and to all, to all men having love. But then there's hope as well. Patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That this patience is produced by hope in Christ. That's what produces the patience. There's an endurance here. Now when you go back to the scene of the planting of this church, it is evident that the unbelieving Jews were seeking to dismantle the work. They were doing everything in their power to destroy it. And they went into the marketplace, and you remember that they tried to encourage those lewd men of the baser sort and try and encourage them to rebel and get them all riled up to oppose the church. And they themselves got involved as well and got the authorities involved. There's there's tremendous opposition to them. And aggressive tactics were used to drive souls away from the gospel. Of course, plenty of those tactics used today. Aggressively driving people away from Christ. It's going on all the time. 
But they continued on. Why did they continue on? That's what Paul's highlighting. They exhibited patience or an endurance in their hope. Their hope manifested endurance. And what's their hope? Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope that is resting on Christ. As they meditated upon what the Lord had done for them. And this is what Christians don't do. You want to know why Christians backslide? At least one of the reasons. As they live in a world that is in opposition to the gospel, opposition to Christ, and you have these Christians or professing Christians and they they trip and they tumble and they fall. Why is it that they do so? Is it not that they fail to really understand? As first, I think sometimes the problem is in the understanding. They haven't been well taught. But then also in their meditation of what they understand. Now many here today, you've been well taught. You, you know plenty. You know plenty. But do you meditate upon what you know? To resurrect it once a week when you come to church is not going to help you when, when there's great opposition. You're going, to, you're going to walk out of here every Lord's Day and you may be built up and strengthened and then it's just a decline through the whole week. You're just heading down. It's about trying to make sure you don't crash and burn before the next Lord's Day when you hear the Word. How can you prevent that? You prevent it by understanding the Gospel. I understand what God has done for me in His Son. I understand imputed righteousness. I understand the blood of Jesus Christ. I understand justification. I understand sanctification. I understand glorification. I'm I'm grappling with these things, meditating on these things, thinking upon them meaningfully. And with the meditation and the truth, the heart is encouraged. Hope is enriched and strengthened. And we're not in any doubt about the things we profess to believe. We are are living in a day, the distracted generation. There has never been a generation so distracted, so distracted, so that Christians can sit here, even in a place like this where the preacher might go on for a, a longer period of time than maybe some others, and you, you can hear it all, but you can walk out and instead of, I trust, having something to dwell upon and think upon and meditate upon and feed your prayers and encourage you in your own study, instead of that, you immediately switch to something else, completely distracted, And so what you actually hear on the Lord's Day just evaporates into the ether because it hasn't had time to bed in, grip your soul, encourage your heart, and build you up and strengthen your faith and your hope in Christ. Take time, beloved. Parents, talk to your children about what they heard. Encourage it to be bedded in. Well, what did you hear? Don't be harsh on them. Don't make it into a kind of despised classroom. But just encourage them. Encourage them to pay attention. Encourage them in whatever way you can so that what they are hearing, little tidbits of it, begins to bed in and be encouraging to their hearts. Even husbands and wives. Try to resist the temptation to talk about who was there, who was not there, what conversation you had before you left and get into your car with an individual on the way home or around the dinner table. Try to talk about the Word. 
to, to, to relay your thoughts and, and encourage one another. I must move on to the third point. Very quickly, it results in persuasion. This evidence of election results in persuasion. Paul was persuaded of something. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Paul is able to say that he knows their elect of God because of what he knew was true that he expresses in the third verse. He is persuaded that they are chosen by God. A couple of things here. First, election depends upon divine activity. It's your election of God. Your election of God. It's not your activity. You did not choose yourself to be in Christ. You did not rise up in the ranks of human attainment and think to yourself, I'll choose Christ while others do not. How much better am I? No. You were chosen of God. It came from Him. It depends upon divine activity. These Thessalonians were not better than others in the city. God just had mercy on them. He had chosen them in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Chosen in Him, that is, in Christ, from before the foundation of the world. And they enjoyed this. They knew this. What a privilege it was. And that, again, is further evidence why He must begin. We give thanks to God always for you all. We give thanks to God because He, he is the one who has brought this to pass. Election not only depends on divine activity, but it's rooted in divine love. In divine love. Knowing, brethren, beloved. Knowing, brethren, beloved. If you have a margin, it may say, beloved of your God. Knowing, brethren, beloved of your God. Your election. Beloved of your God. It is rooted in divine love. Again, he is ascribing glory to God. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? Just as a side note, that Paul that spent so little time in this city and did not spend anywhere near the length of time that he did in some other places, like, for example, his letter to the Ephesians, where he spent, as I said earlier, three years in that city. He didn't spend very long here, and yet he can write about their election of God without explanation. In other words, in the short time he was there, he made them very aware that God had chosen them in Christ. Paul's preaching, while it came simply in pointing sinners to Christ, did not take a low view of the gospel. He had an exalted view of the gospel. So exalted, he was not afraid to tell young believers, this is of God. It's all of God. Young believers aware of the fact chosen by God, elect in Christ. And so as young believers, they were aware of this. Nowadays, you'd nearly have to take a, a, a seminary degree before people would really deal with election. They think it's this high and lofty doctrine that should hardly be touched. Now I understand it can be misapplied and misunderstood. But all the more then we should understand it by, by getting to it early and mining it out and ascribing glory to the God of our salvation. What a, sad, what, a, what a sad condition it is for someone to be in a place where they think that they did something in their salvation. What kind of a salvation is that? God has done this. God has done this. Oh, beloved, I trust today you know your election of God. 
I trust you do. You know, you know where you stand. It is not the will of God that you drift around always doubting your salvation. There are periods of doubt and God may use them to drive us closer to himself. But in a, being in a constant condition of doubt is very unhelpful and not the will of God. If you do not know that you are chosen in Christ, that you are truly the Lord's, that you belong to him, you can find out today. You can. You say, well, well, well how? How? How can I? Well, the same way it happened in this city. Paul did not come into them and say, God chooses some to salvation and then walk away. That's not what he said. He went into the city and he preached unto them Christ. He opened alleging that Christ must needs have died and suffer and rise from the dead. He pointed men to Christ to his person, to his work. He got their attention off themselves and onto God's activity on behalf of sinners. And then he simply says, believe. Believe in the Son. Believe in his work. Rest in his accomplishment. See him doing it all on your behalf and rest there. Stop striving to to make ends between you and God. Stop seeking to do the best that you can. Stop working in that way. That's not what God has provided. He has provided a path of sure salvation. Absolutely that we know everything God demands has been met in His Son. And your your call, the invitation that goes out is to come and rest. Come and rest. Throw the weight of your soul. Put your entire eternity on Christ. And see or hear the words of the Lord Jesus saying, come, come on to me. Come to me. Stop delaying. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't procrastinate. Come to me. I have done all things well. To put it in the words of the parable the Lord taught, come for all things are now ready. You don't have to come in and do anything. It's all ready. It's like a great feast that has been laid out before you. You come in and you say to the host, or the hostess, what can I do for you? Can I help with the turkey, with the chicken, with the meat, with the potatoes? Can I help? It's all done. It's all done. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. If you do not know peace with God, you can know it today, and that's the joy I have every Lord's Day, is to let you know you need not delay You need not wonder, you can come to Christ today. If you need any help in this, I'll be glad to help you in whatever way I can, even just to pray with you. I trust the Lord will bless His Word to each of our hearts. Let us pray. Father, we commend each and every one here today to Thee. We pray against the activities of the evil one who tries to steal away the seed of the Word. We pray that the Word, 
that the seed of the word will get into ground that will produce fruit. There are some here this morning and they don't know where they stand before thee. And they're halting. They're procrastinating. They're pondering. They're weighing up matters. Father, would it please thee to show afresh thy love to them. Help them to understand thy love. Help them to grasp the fact that there is no reluctance in thee. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May each and every one of us here today know our election of God. May we have a quiet confidence, not in our own work, but in the work that has been produced in us and is produced through us as the blessed Spirit of God dwells within our lives. Take us to our homes this afternoon with gratitude for all that thou hast done. Bless every conversation here and on the journey home and around the table. And we pray, Father, that thou wilt bring us back here again tonight to hear thy word. Bring others in. May it please thee to deal with hearts. And remember those that are involved with the Generations Boys Home. We pray that thou wilt empower Anthony and Caleb as they handle the word. Fill them with the Holy Ghost. Give them tremendous success, as it were, the help of God. And save those lives for the glory of thy name. Hear us now. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.